when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Article 50's passing from the Commons to the House of Lords, and whether John Burko is about to be ejected as Speaker of the House of Commons. I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Picard, the FT's Chief Political Correspondent, James Blitz, our Whitehall Editor, Robert Shrimsley, Managing Editor of FT.com, Political Correspondent Henry Mance, and Political Commentator Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. So, another week and another vote on Article 50. The House of Commons voted for the third and possibly final time on the government's bill to give the Prime Minister the power to begin EU divorce talks. Once again, MPs overwhelmingly backed Brexit and Labour Party saw itself having more rebellions and resignations. Now it has gone to the House of Lords, who are on a strict timetable to debate and not amend it, so Theresa May's timetable cannot be disrupted. So, Jim Picard, let's begin with the Commons debate on Article 50. It's had two votes now, has been backwards and forwards, but the bill hasn't been changed and nothing about the government's Brexit process has actually been altered by MPs. Yes, so there was a bit of a hoo-ha a couple of weeks ago by some Labour MPs saying this is disgraceful that we've only got three days at this stage of the bill to debate. Leaving the European Union, when you think that we had more than 30 days discussing the Maastricht Treaty and we had an awful lot of time debating the Lisbon Treaty and all the rest of it. But given the fairly low standard of debate, I've been sat there watching it earlier this week. I mean, it was a bit tumbleweedy just for a couple of days because ultimately these guys realised that we're leaving it's very clear we're not going to be in the single market. You can debate around the edges, and we had the amendments on Wednesday evening discussing Gibraltar and discussing the NHS and all the rest of it, and none, none of those amendments got through. And I think just the writing was on the wall, even for most of those MPs, and it was most MPs, who wanted to stay in the EU in the first place. Essentially, the House of Commons voted six times for the referendum in various forms, and MPs have reluctantly or not reluctantly in some cases said, we backed the Brexit referendum, we've therefore got to respect the outcome and even though the majority of MPs do have some quite big misgivings about Brexit and about leaving the single market they simply said we've got to go along with this otherwise it would create some kind of constitutional nightmare. There there was a great quote from Dame Margaret Beckett saying something along the lines of I'm voting for Article 50 even though I think it's going to all end in tears and end be a complete catastrophe and people pointed out she did similar things on the Iraq war where she voted for it and then thought it was the most awful thing ever and she also backed Jeremy Corbyn and then thought it was the most awful thing ever. It's not a great position for MPs though is it because you could say MPs are supposed to lead public opinion as well as follow it. The MPs who are actually saying look I think Brexit's a really bad idea I'm not going to vote for it. It's very few in number on all sides there's only one real Conservative rebel and that's good old Ken Clark. Yeah I think The riposte to that is that politicians had their chance to lead opinion. They had their chance to lead opinion over the last 40 years. They had their chance to lead opinion in the run-up to the referendum. They made all these arguments and the Remainers who... Remember, it was the leaders of most of the main parties. It was the majority of MPs. They made very clear, forceful, some would say scaremongering arguments about the consequences of leaving the EU. And the public decides to ignore them. And 
Therefore, I think it is a democracy. Therefore, they need to listen to the people who, albeit by a small margin, voted out. And that is what was basically happening. James Blitz, take us through what happens now. The Article 50 bill has now gone to the House of Lords. And it's unamended. It's exactly the very short 130-odd word bill the government produced. The Lords are now going to debate it and they will have their vote on it. Is it going to be slowed down there, do you think? Or would the House of Lords not dare? Because there's been lots of chatters in Westminster. The government has said, if you mess with this, then we'll abolish the House of Lords or reform it or pack it with our own peers to get this through. The House of Lords is in a quite extraordinarily difficult situation. It is an unelected house. All of the 803 members have been directly appointed. And therefore, if they were to block Article 50, let's imagine for one moment they were thinking of doing that, that would go not only against a democratic referendum, it would also go against the will of the House of Commons, which did not amend this legislation at all. So that would be an extraordinary... It tried to, but failed. It tried to, but failed. But even so, it has emerged unaltered. And so the Lords will be having to tread in incredibly carefully here. That said, the Lords is potentially a revising chamber. There was no manifesto commitment to leaving the EU, which is quite important because the Lords is bound by what was in the government's manifesto. And I think one of the things the Lords has shown in the past is that it does sometimes want to test the will of the Commons or the decisions of the Commons where it feels that there are a lot of MPs, especially on the governing side, who would like to vote for something but are unable to do so because of party political whipping, if you like. And there are some issues there where there are clearly Conservative MPs who do feel differently from the outcome. One of them is the question of the rights of EU nationals to have their rights to remain in the UK guaranteed. That was one of the tabled amendments in the Commons that didn't make it through. Correct. The Harriet Harman Amendment, which was the one which was closest and where the government had the most difficulty but still passed with a reasonable majority. It's not impossible that the Lords, I think, could take the view. There are a lot of Conservative MPs who are unhappy about it. Even Brexiters are unhappy about it. We will push through that amendment, send it back to the Commons and ask them to think again. That, I think, is a credible possibility. But Miranda Green, the problem with this, if that happens, and this is the old ping-pong where bills go backwards and forwards between the two chambers, then there's a real danger that will delay the timetable because Theresa May's not got that long. She's said that Article 50 will be triggered by the end of March this year and she ideally wants the bill to be made law about the 7th of March and the idea is she might want to send a notification around the 9th of March. So there is a bit of leeway in that timetable there. But if the Lords does do the things that James suggests or even just vote it down or what have you then the government will find itself in a difficult position and another constitutional headache. That's true but I think as James has said that's quite unlikely to happen for the reasons that we've discussed which is that the Lords knows it's on very thin ice here. It's not the elected chamber it's supposed to be a secondary revising chamber. If for example the Lords was to decide to coalesce cross-party opinion over this question of the rights of the three million EU citizens who are currently living and working in the UK and they then sent it back to the Commons and the Commons once again failed to pass that amendment that was originally tabled by Harriet Harman in the Commons. You you know, I think if it then came back to the Lords, the Lords wouldn't go through the whole process again. That ping-pong that you've described that could seriously delay the triggering of Article 50, I would say is almost impossible because the Lords is so self-conscious about the limited rights it has 
to defy the government enacting a referendum where the country has voted in a certain way, even if they overwhelmingly disagree with it, and even, as is the case in the House of Lords, where the governing party does not have the majority. You've got to remember that. The House of Lords is packed with opposition politicians. I do agree with James that the most likely amendment to get through in the Lords is the one about the three million EU migrants. But I think just to step back from what it actually means, there was a lot of anger on Wednesday night, people saying this is disgraceful that we're not going to guarantee these poor people, three million people stuck in limbo in this country. Will they be forced out and all the rest of it? And I can see why people feel emotional about it. It's not a happy place to be in. But the government's position on this is that if we unilaterally say, sure, they can all stay regardless of any conditions, and we have over a million British pensioners living in Spain and we have people living everywhere else over the EU, I mean, the approach is not that the government doesn't want them to stay, it's that they just want to have a a negotiation whereby they get rights, but our people living elsewhere in Europe get rights. So that is the government's position. But the problem is, it's actually quite a weak position. I think this is the issue that's been raised by a lot of peers on the Tory side as well, which is that actually, the truth is, if we unilaterally and immediately gave these rights to the 3 million here, there is no way that European countries are going to suddenly turn around one day and say, well, actually, your 1 million Brits have got to go home, first of all. And there are also very good reasons to do it. It would be, a lot of people believe, even on the Brexit side, it would be a very good gesture to the Europeans that showed that we actually are constructive, creative, humane. May needs a lot of goodwill from the Europeans in these talks. And the other thing is that at a time when the economy is vulnerable, it gives a lot of assurance to British employers. That's one of the arguments. I think this is absolutely key. Many Brexiters also would like to have seen the government on the day after the referendum, on the 24th of June, guarantee those rights for EU citizens to stay and work here. And it's an economic issue, not just a kind of compassion issue. And I completely agree with James. If you actually talk to negotiation experts, for example, they say quite a lot of how you get a good deal is not to do with refusing to cooperate. It's to do with some of these goodwill trust gestures at the start. But I think just to give the government's defence here, they would say that they would want to have done this. And Theresa May has said, this is what we try to talk about. But the EU 27 has taken the approach. They are not going to talk about anything until Article 50 is triggered. And that's the approach that Michel Barnier, the EU negotiator, has said. So I think that will be a very early thing when the talks begin. And and we should also reassure people by saying that Mrs May has also signaled that she wants to absolutely see those rights respected. So they're not really under threat. It's about rubber stamping that and when you do it. Look, my view on this is that this amendment is not going to survive. If by any chance the Lords did pass that amendment and somehow it went back to the Commons and they actually passed it, it would be such a bad political blow for Mrs May since she has set her face against this right from the time she talked about it on the Peston programme before she became leader. So she has been consistent on this point throughout. So it's not going to happen. But even so, the arguments of the government, I think, are bad. It is an area where, as we say, the Brexiters are in favour of it, and I think it could be tested. Again, I take your point that it's about the economy and it's not good for employers to not know whether their staff can stay or not. But I think you take the fact that the million people living in Spain are mostly pensioners, and therefore in the coming years, as they get dementia or Alzheimer's or they get sick, that's a potential drain on the Spanish government. You can see that they may want to impose some strings if we allow this to happen with no strings at all? Do we put ourselves in a position where other countries can make impositions? 
So just going back to the state of the Commons at the moment, Jim, looking at how the vote went, it was another difficult time for the Labour Party, again, because Jeremy Corbyn whipped his MPs, the three-line whip, that's his strongest weapon, he's got to back the Brexit bill. And it was rather an odd situation because they tried to amend it, but they said, actually, at the end of the day, we're still going to support it. And this goes back to the, the democratic will of the people argument. And we saw some more resignations from the shadow cabinet as pro-EU MPs felt they couldn't support Support this. It wasn't in the interest of their constituents. And this has started the talk yet again that Jeremy Corbyn is going to resign or somehow leave the leadership. Is there any truth to it? I think there's something to be said for the argument from Jeremy Corbyn's team that he ought to be getting credit for doing something fairly brave, which is taking on his own grassroots. You remember how Tony Blair always used to be praised when he took on the left. And now, ironically, you have Jeremy Corbyn, the probably 200, 300,000 people who supported him in two leadership contests, many of whom joined the party because they thought he was this amazing Gandhi-esque figure on the left. And a lot of them are also Europhiles and they now feel completely betrayed. And you only have to look at the Facebook page of, of a left wing under 30, something to see just how distraught some of these people are. And so in a bizarre situation where a lot of the grassroots are unhappy, but MPs who six months ago were trying to take him out are broadly on side. And I would say it's something like four-fifths of the party did vote alongside Jeremy Corbyn. Admittedly, having 50 rebels is not a good look when the Tories only had one. The thing is, though, Miranda, Jeremy Corbyn should take a bit of credit here. And there was an interesting piece by the posters YouGov this week that said, actually, his position, although it looks a bit perplexing through the Westminster lens, to the wider country, it's actually not a bad place to be. Because if we remember during the referendum, in an interview, Mr Corbyn said he was about 7.5 out of 10 enthusiastic about the EU, which is not too dissimilar to most British people. And I think his position on this is actually more in chiming with where Labour's grassroots voters are, if not the party supporters. So although he's been a bit all over the place and he is in opposition to his MPs, it might not be the worst thing for Labour electorally. I have to say that I completely disagree with that. I think that Jeremy Corbyn has systematically now managed to alienate every group, even those with differing opinions on whether the UK should follow through on Brexit. I understand Jim's point about all these enthusiastic new people who've joined the Labour Party and that going against them might be seen as brave. But I think you have to remember that Jeremy Corbyn comes from a part of the left, which has always been hostile mm. to the EU. He's he a long-term not... Eurosceptic. Absolutely. And, you know, actually, if you go, um, as I have, to all sorts of shades of Brexit opinion over the last year or so on panels etc there is a really strong anti-eu it's a corporate conspiracy it's anti-democratic we must take back control leftism which is quite powerful so actually i think he's accidentally alienated those new recruits to labor not on purpose as a show of strength and a lot of those corbynistas simply didn't believe mps when they said last june that Corbyn had deliberately undermined and scuppered the Remain campaign. They thought this is typical Blairite, MSM, PLP nonsense. But there is an element of truth in it. I mean, he was shamed. There was like evidence, there were leaked emails that showed that Corbyn's office had, you know, reined back his influence within the campaign. Yeah, and kind of putting out press releases when everyone had gone to bed and pulling press releases. And I went to an event where he was asked whether he believed the Treasury's forecasts of economic damage if we left the EU, and he just said he thought they were nonsense. So... James, what do you make of Labour's position on Brexit? Do you agree with Miranda, Jim or me, or do you have your own opinion on what Mr Corbyn's done? Uh, my own views are, one, whether you're for or against what Corbyn's done, the reality is that the 
May position on Brexit has not seriously been tested in the House of Commons. The, she's not or, changed anything at all. She's not been forced to change anything and it's not been properly examined. The question of whether we could have gone for an alternative model, which was one which was actually putting the economy, not necessarily first, but certainly privileging it much more than is the case, has simply not been put. And so that's bad for the country. I think it's really striking, I think, when you look at the John Burko intervention on Donald Trump. When I saw it, I thought it was one of those few moments where actually somebody has stood up and actually quite vocally challenged something which the government is doing. That hasn't happened on breakfast. I think the other thing which is striking is that if you take a historical view, in 1972, when Edward Heath passed the legislation to take Britain into the European Union, it was Labour that was divided then. There were the, the divisions on the Labour side with the issue at that time. The Tories were much more united. That moment when Roy Jenkins went into the Yes lobby and was howled at by all of the anti-Europeans in the Labour Party. Including Tony Benn, including Mr Corbyn's Tony Benn former Labour. was the start of the journey. And I think it's very striking that at the end of the journey, 40 years later, it is again the Tories who are actually united. And that's perhaps the most important thing about this week. The Tories have ended the great story of, of the Tories in Europe united. And it is Labour that is divided. It's quite striking. James is absolutely right. And of course, the issue of Europe, on which Labour was then so divided all those years ago, was what led to the coalescing of Roy Jenkins, Shirley Williams and the others to form the SDP. So, you know, as we watch Labour's travails this month, trying to fight by-elections and convince its working class roots supporters that it's still on their side... That raises once again this issue of has the Labour Party itself as an institution run out of steam? And just finally, Jim, I've got a last quick question for you about the resignation of Clive Lewis, which mm. had a lot of attention. So he was the shadow business secretary and he's a Corbynite in his world perspective, if not necessarily a tight confidant of Jeremy Corbyn. He resigned after wearing his heart in front of the TV cameras a lot this week about what a difficult position he was in. He's now left and has gone away to plot on the back benches. Do you think he's a potential success for Mr Corbyn if and when he decides to retire? Yeah, and it's said that Clive Lewis has support from people like Paul Mason and Owen Jones, kind of left-wing commentators. He's got an interesting backstory in that he was a reservist in Afghanistan. He came in in 2015. He doesn't have quite the same negative baggage that John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn had, but he's quite untested. MPs say to me, you know, what has he actually achieved since he came in in 2015? The answer's still not particularly clear. And should the Labour grassroots turn against Corbyn and Corbyn, ism then he will be very much associated with it but he does seem to have made a decision cynical or otherwise which is the opposite of Corbyn's team who said we've seen the polls only 20% of the British public are diehard Remainers and that's quite a large trophy if you're the Lib Dems and you're on your knees and aiming for 20% of the population is quite good but we need to reach the other 80% but whereas within the Labour membership they seem to be mostly Europhile and therefore Clive is looking at them uh, with a glint in his eye thinking I can quite easily harvest them at some point in the future. I don't think he'll try and take down Corbyn, but if and when Corbyn leaves, which may only be a year or so away, he will be one of those in pole position to potentially take over. Why do you say just a year or so away very briefly? Well, it's said to me by quite senior people in the union movement that they don't really want Jeremy Corbyn taking Labour into 2020, with the Tories producing some massive dossier talking about his friends in Hamas and Hezbollah and his old friends in the IRA and his desire to basically have no limits on welfare, no limits on immigration and 500 billion of extra spending. They think this would be a disaster. Even quite left-wing union people think that. Whether they have the power to actually 
bring down Corbyn if he decides to stick it out. So far, he's withstood some quite big rebellions. You may remember nearly all MPs last summer saying he was useless and should go. And he's waded through all of that. He may still wade all the way through to 2020, but let's see. John Burko, the Speaker of the House of Commons, has got himself into a bit of trouble this week. He stood up in the Commons chamber and said that Donald Trump, the US President, would be barred from speaking in Westminster Hall or the Royal Gallery due to his previous comments about race and women. A is then kicked up about why he decided to speak out in a no-confidence motion and Mr Burko has been put forward by some Conservative MPs. Now, Henry Mance, just for a bit of background on this, John Burko is a pretty divisive figure because he was a very right-wing conservative in the past and slowly drifted leftwards, and many conservatives are very sceptical of his motivations. And it seems to be that this intervention was somehow linked to a Labour, which has made conservatives very unhappy. Is there any chance of him having to resign or be kicked out? We don't think so. We don't think that his colleagues disenchanted with him on the Conservative benches actually have a majority because John Burko does have some friends amongst the Conservative Party and he also has pleased lots of people in Labour and the Liberal Democrats and Scottish Nationalists. Having said that, it's probably a fairly uncomfortable situation to be in and yet he seems to think controversy means that he's making an impact. The critics of John Burko say that although he's been a very good speaker in some respects, which I'll come on to in a moment, he does put himself front and centre of the debate and his critics say that he's very pompous and it doesn't work well for the chamber to have this figure at the front of this where it should really be politicians. Yeah, one of the things I, I always notice when I'm in the House of Commons listening to a debate or Prime Minister's questions is that when someone's droning on or making noise, John Burko takes even more time to tell them to shut up than perhaps is necessary. And so we actually waste not just the time of listening to someone droning on, but also the time it takes for John Burko to clear his throat and make a theatrical point that this person should shut up. And in some ways, if you're watching at home, it must feel a bit ridiculous. Having said that, he has empowered the House of Commons. He's brought ministers to the dispatch box to answer questions to make sure that Parliament is a forum where the issues of the day are discussed. And, you know, Britain has a very strong executive. And to reassert Parliament's power, especially in an age of 24-hour news and Twitter, is a heavy job. I mean, this week he also announced that the clerks would lose their wigs, which is a small step in the right direction of bringing the commons into the 21st century. So I think he has achieved lots, not just antagonising his own colleagues. Robert Shimsley, I know you're a bit more of a fan than John Burko than some of us, and you think that he's been a good thing for the House of Commons. And as Henry said, Parliament very much is the cockpit of the nation again. And if you look at during the financial crisis, there were very few statements in the Commons, whereas in subsequent times, it's been the centre of all big things about Brexit, about the economy, about the future of the country in all sorts of respects, and the fact that backbench MPs have been given a lot more opportunities to speak and have their voices heard. So it's not just about the big government figures on the front benches. But do you think he's messed up here? I don't think I'd call myself a fan. I have more sympathy for him than perhaps some others. I think he possibly overstepped the mark a little because the reasons he gave were, you know, they weren't necessarily the main parliamentary reasons for stopping somebody coming. At least as undeserving people have received the honour of speaking to both Houses of Parliament in Westminster Hall. And he made, I think, the important tactical error of not having consulted with the two other people who, with him, decide on these invitations. On the other hand, I do think he did one thing that was important, which is that reminded the government that these invitations that they're spraying out to Donald Trump are not actually 
at the beck and call of the government. This is for Parliament to decide whether it chooses to honour somebody, and it is quite a decent honour to be given. And he was reminding the government that this is not just a matter for Theresa May to decide as she throws baubles at Donald Trump. This is the wider controversy here that he'd been president for a very short period and she went to visit him in the White House very early on as a state visit due later this year, much sooner than other presidents have received. It's all part of her post-Brexit trade cozying up to America. So in that respect, you could say this was a good corrective to her political agenda. Whether it was a good corrective, it was a corrective. We are in the process now of sucking up to Donald Trump in a major way. We've thrown him the royal visit. Theresa May rushed out there. She wants to give him every possible reason to look favourably upon Britain as he forms policy. And we've done it before. We did it with the Chinese president. The same thing was given all the trimmings when he came here. But Mr Burko didn't decry President Xi at the and time. Th- th- that, I think, is perhaps the most potent criticism of the way John Burko's acted. But as I said, I do think this is something for Parliament. And Burko has been very big on standing up for the rights of Parliament. And as you say, he's been a major figure in giving back benches much more say, in helping ministers be forced to account. And a government which doesn't like the way the Speaker is forcing it to account is probably a sign of a Speaker doing his job. And just one point there on on President Xi's visit, when Burko introduced him, he did make a a strong point of saying, we recently had Aung San Suu Kyi of of Burma here and she stands up for democracy and human rights. And so he didn't just uh, roll over when President Xi of China came. I think he did make the same point that there are values that Parliament stands for. I would also add that when I hear people accusing John Burko of being pompous, I think if we made that a hanging offence, the Commons would be a lot emptier. But Henry, the question I suppose now is that Mr Burko has said he would only do about nine years as the Commons Speaker, which will be coming up next year, in fact. So he's been thought he's going to retire anyway, and there's a couple of candidates from Labour, Chris Bryant, Jacob Rees-Mogg for the Conservatives, who are considering wanting to run for the Speakership, which, again, to remind our listeners, is a non-party political position. You remain an MP, but you have to give up membership of a particular party if you do that. Is there a chance that even if this no-confidence motion the Speaker fails, which seems most likely, it will speed up his departure because of pressure exerted on him. I'm not convinced of that. He may well feel fortified in his position by the fact that people are trying to get rid of him. He may say, well, I must be doing something right. And indeed, one could read his willingness to defy the government on Trump's state visit as a sign that he's kind of demob happy and he wants to achieve a few things and to go out with some kind of flourish. So it may be that he's already on his way out. I mean, the jockeying to succeed him is, is quite interesting. Chris Bryant, who's remarkably eloquent and I think people who oppose him find him very annoying, but he's trying to associate himself with the whole refurbishment of Parliament. He was on the committee that has looked at plans for this maybe three, four, five billion pound overhaul of Parliament systems to stop it burning down at some point in the future. And so the case he'll make is that I know how to get not just the Commons procedures working, but the actual building in shape. And then finally, Robert, we've got this debate on the 20th of February, I believe, which is the result of the public petitions. The first one was about 1.8 million people who were saying Donald Trump should not have a state visit and a couple of hundred thousand who said that he should have a state visit. In some ways, Mr Burko might have been reflecting that. But the fact is, if this state visit does go ahead, it's going to be an awful lot of protests from people and that what we saw on Whitehall last week will be magnified if the US president does come and if the visit is not delayed or degraded somehow. Yes, I think there's every reason to assume the visit will go ahead and there's every reason to assume there will be some protests. But I've seen American security and it certainly stands up to comparison with Chinese security and that he will be amply sheltered from the worst of the protests. You know, if politicians want to make a bit of a stand or people want to absent themselves from his visit, I'm sure they will. 
But, you know, we're quite good at making these things pass smoothly for those inside the bubble. And Henry, this debate will go on inside the Commons, Shamil, but it's actually not going to lead anything because there's no binding way the MPs could stop the visit from happening. That's correct. I mean, it's for the Queen to extend that invitation and the Prime Minister effectively to decide it on her behalf. We're seeing lots of foreign policy issues float across the Commons, though. The issue of whether Britain really stands up for a two-state solution in, in Israel and Palestine. The issue of what we do with Assad. Boris Johnson has said that we may have to reconsider our policy and that's shaping up to get close to Trump. And those are potential dividing lines. So the issue of how close we get to the Trump administration is, is going to be a very live one. And in fact, it will probably become more live by the fact that MPs can't stop this visit and we'll have to think about him a lot more come June. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to our guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.